uh, there on the table. This is our last section here in the book of Genesis. <clears throat> um, it's, uh, it's entitled, uh, this portion is entitled Vayaki, which is, and he lived. It's, it's talking about when uh, Jacob lived in the land. So uh, if you remember, you know, Joseph's been there. The famine has now been going on for two years. The brothers have showed up. Uh, he sent them back. All, all that stuff has happened. He's revealed himself to his brothers. They've gone back and gotten Jacob, uh, which is his name is now Israel, <clears throat> and brought him and the whole family there. And uh, now they're living in the land. And so uh, in Genesis chapter 47, starting with verse 28, and uh, just down through verse 30, is where you get the title for this section. And it says, And Jacob, or Yaakov, lived in the land of Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, 17 years. So the length of Yaakov's life was 147 years. And the time for Israel to die drew near, and he called his son Yosef, and he said to him, Now if I found favor in your eyes, please put your hand under my thigh and show kindness and truth to me. Please do not bury me in Mitzrayim. But I shall lie with my fathers, and you shall take me up out of Mitzrayim and bury me in the burial place. And he said, I do as you have said. And we pray that God would honor the reading of his word tonight. Amen. So as we continue to study this and look at this, <clears throat> this is where Jacob is uh, realizing that he's, he's going to die here pretty soon. He's already been now there 17 years. So this is past the famine. So it's now 17 years. Uh, so it's been another 15 years past the famine. Uh, no. I'll have to re-add that up. Anyhow, it's been, a lot, it's been a while since the famine. Um, and here's something that I want you to see, and you might want to highlight this because this is a little interesting thing in Scripture, a lot of debate as to why this happens this way. But you'll notice in verse 28 it says, And Yaakov lived in the land of Mitzrayim, which that's the Hebrew word for Egypt, uh, 17 years. You get down to verse 29 and it says, and the time came for Israel to die. So in this one little section here, you've got both names used. And this is where, yes, it can get a little confusing unless you pay attention. Um, that this is his new name that God had given him. But there's a number of times when both names are used. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in trying to decipher exactly why all that is the case. I'm just bringing that to your attention because have you ever just read your Bible and get a little confused? And you're like, I, what, what, what's going on here? Well, you have to remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. <clears throat> and then uh, God reminds him of that after he changed his name. But uh, here it says that Jacob lived there uh, 17 years. And then verse 29 says, and then... The time came near for Israel to die. So <clears throat> that's just a little side point, just bringing that up so that you'll understand that those names are used interchangeably for this one person that uh, starts off his name as Jacob, but his name gets changed to Israel, and that's where the nation of Israel get their name. So <clears throat> it says here in verse 29 that he, he called his son Joseph, or Yosef, and he asked him to do something. 
This uh, phrase and this thing comes up from time to time because a lot of people uh, get confused by it. and They're like, what in the world is, is that? Because he tells him, says, here, what I want you to do is I want you to put your hand under my thigh uh, and then swear you're going to do these things. And the idea in the Middle Eastern uh, culture was that what you were doing was you were making a promise that you would do something, and if you didn't, the descendants of that man whose hand you put under his thigh uh, would bring justice, whatever that meant, if you didn't follow through with what you were saying. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Then, who are Israel's descendants? Joseph's own brothers, which then that comes up later, which Susan just mentioned that at the time when Jacob or Israel actually does die. So Joseph does this uh, symbolic gesture of putting his hand under his own father's thigh and promising, yes, I will not allow you to be buried here in Egypt. We'll take you home and take care of this. And he's basically saying that, and if I don't, my brothers can kill me. Which is interesting, because that not that what they conspired about doing the first time around? So here again, we're seeing Joseph being this uh, type of Messiah and literally saying, you know, I, I know that they've hated me. I know they've conspired against me. I'm going to do... I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, and I'll literally even put my life in their hands. It's, he's so forgiving, in other words, what I'm trying to say, um, just like our Savior, amen? And the Scripture says that even while we were enemies of God, Christ and God showed us how much He loved us in this, that He died for our sins. That's found in Matthew, I mean in, in Romans. <clears throat> so, uh, Joseph says, yes, I will do that. If you jump ahead to Genesis 48, verse 1, it says, And after these events, it came to be that it was said to Joseph, See, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh, or uh, anyway, Manasseh and Ephraim. <clears throat> or you've usually heard called just Manasseh uh, and Ephraim. It's important now, this is, this is one of those areas in Scripture to understand what's really going on. This is one of those areas in Scripture where it's like, this seems like little trivial kind of information that we're about to read, but it becomes critically important in understanding what happens later. So he's, he's making a point here for us to understand that Joseph, Joseph takes his two sons with him, Manasseh and Ephraim. Following me? You jump to verse 5. This is where Israel, Jacob, is going to make some comments about Ephraim and Manasseh. And he's basically going to say, my grandsons are actually now to be considered my own sons which becomes important with what? Inheritance. Okay? Very important. So he says, and now, and 
and by the way, I've highlighted mine. You might want to do that on your notes there or in your Bible. It'd be all right to do that. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, did you notice the placement of those names? The first time it says in verse 1, he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Why would it be listed that way? Because Manasseh was the firstborn. But what's about to happen is that's about to get switched. And right here we have a clue because remember who's writing this? Moses, at God's direction, so that the people of Israel will know where they came from, what God's been doing, how he created everything, how to live, on and on and on. <clears throat> so now in verse 5, he says, and now your two sons, and who's saying this? This is Jacob. This is Israel now saying this. Your two sons. So he's, make, he's if you will, a real quick prophesying what he's about to do. He's, he's telling him basically in what he's saying, what he's already made up his mind he's going to do. Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Mitzrayim before I came to you in Mitzrayim, they are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they are mine. He's saying they are equal mine. Just as much as Reuben and Simeon. Why do you think he would have said that? I'm going to get ahead of myself here a little bit because we're going to go through very quickly um, these blessings that Jacob blesses his sons. He speaks something over his sons, all 12 of them. But the first two, Reuben and Simeon, and actually Levi also, they get blasted because of what they did in the past. Um, and, uh, and that follows them and their tribes basically on into eternity. It's, it's not good. Uh, but, and he, he already knows this is coming. But at this point, Jacob is also really prophesying. He's going to be saying some things that are really going to be, if you will, etched in stone pretty much. Uh, he says, they are mine as the same as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Verse 6, your offspring, whom you shall bring forth after them, are yours. And let them be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. This is where he's making this distinction and why this is important. He's saying, these two boys are now equal in the inheritance with all of my sons. Following that, turn the page. Because now we're going to get to verse 13. <clears throat> so this is where uh, a, a couple of things have transpired. And then Joseph basically takes his boys and he intentionally, because he knows there's about to be a blessing. And when the blessing was given, uh, the one, uh, the firstborn, would, the blessing would have gone to him. We talked about that in the past here. And the way that that would happen would be that the father would place his right hand on the head of his firstborn son to give him the blessing of the firstborn uh, and the double portion of the inheritance and, and all of that stuff. So Joseph knows this even though he's already, it's already been hinted to him what Jacob is about to do. What he does is he takes Manasseh, 
puts him on his left side, which would be Jacob's right side. And Ephraim on his right side, which would have been on Jacob's left side, so that Manasseh would get the blessing of the firstborn. Following that, now I'm going to, I just told you what I'm about to read. Yosef took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head. So what did that mean he had to do? He had to do this. He had to literally cross his hands and put his right hand over here and his left hand over there on these two boys. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger this has not been, um, this is not new to the story of this family, is it? We've seen this a number of times already. Uh, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, look at this, consciously directing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So God is also telling us here that Israel was being very conscious about what he was doing and doing this on purpose. You jump to verse 17 and it says, And when Yosef saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, that it was evil in his eyes. He was like, what? You know, it's meaning wrong. This this isn't how this works. He's going to really try to uh, correct his father. And he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from the head of Ephraim to the head of Manasseh. He literally reaches over and he's grabbing his dad's hand. He's like, Dad, that's wrong. He's going to try to forcibly put it the other way, the way he thinks it should be. Interesting, isn't it? We're talking about Joseph. He's a pretty cool guy, right? I mean, has he shown us anything in his life up to this point of any fault ever? But right here, he's wrong. What does that tell us? Look, it doesn't matter how close you're walking with God or whatever. None of us are all that. And none of us are right on everything. (laughs) And and watch this. This is no small matter. This is actually huge. It is massive. And it's impacting us today. Believe that or not. So he's literally taking hold of his dad's hand. He's trying to put it back on Manasseh. And Joseph says to his father, not so, my father. For this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know. My son, I know. He's also reminding him. You might be Pharaoh's second in command in this country. I'm about to die, but I'm the daddy. (laughs) Uh, He goes, I know, my son. I know. I know what I'm doing. And at the same time, might need to remember You're the son, I'm the dad. Um, 
I know, my son, I know. And then look what he says. He goes, he also becomes a people. He's talking about Manasseh. He's saying he's going to become a great people. He's going to become a nation. And he also is great. And yet, his younger brother is greater than he. And his seed is to become the completeness, or you can write underneath that, fullness of the nations. Ephraim. I understand, Joseph, but I'm the dad, and you need to understand something. Manasseh will become great. He will become many people. He'll become a great nation. He's going to become like this. He's going to become a, a large tribe, yes. But Ephraim, the younger, is going to be greater than the, his older brother. And as a matter of fact, from him, He's going to become literally the fullness of the nations. Now, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but you remember, because we talk about this a lot around here. There's the two houses of Israel. There's the southern house, which is called the house of Judah. The northern house, which is called the house of Israel, but it's also referred to something else. Ephraim. It's referred to Ephraim and Ephraimites. Um, it's used, it can be referred to as the, the northern tribes. It can be referred to as the house of Israel. It can also be referred to as Ephraim. <clears throat> now, you just have to hold on to that for a little bit. We're going to jump ahead now to our, or go on to verse 20. And he says, and he blessed them on that day and said, in you, now he's talking about these two boys, in you Israel shall bless, saying, Elohim make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, or saying that this is how Israel's going to bless people, which is done to this very day. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Interesting. This is how Israel is going to be blessing and bless other people, saying, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. These are his grandsons. As far as I can tell, the other 11 brothers are not there. This is a private event with Joseph and his two sons. But now you also have to remember this. How old are those boys? They were born, oops, excuse me, they were born before Jacob got there. It's been 17 years. So they're probably in their 20s. You know, they're, they're grown men. Uh... This is important. And they're hearing these things. It says, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, see, I am dying. But Elohim, God, shall be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I, 
I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Right here he's saying, Joseph, I'm really, these are your sons. Yes, they're your sons. They come after you. I'm putting these blessings on them, and they are to be considered as my own, sort of in your place, if you will. Not really replacing him, but they're to be seen as my own. And then he says, what I'm doing right here, Joseph, is I'm giving you the double portion. He's not the last born, Benjamin was. Who was the firstborn? Reuben. Um, then you got Simeon and Levi. And they slaughtered all the people in Shechem out of anger. Uh, And then the next one is Judah. You go on down to basically the 11th born is Joseph. Remember Joseph's dreams that he will end up being over them? Now, Jacob, Israel, is really fulfilling that and saying, I'm going to give your sons, which is basically you, a double portion, which is what they get. Um, this is going to this is going to become uh, more important here in just a second. <clears throat> You'll see this here in just a second. So you get to Genesis forty nine, and this is where, and I'm only going to focus on two of them here, so that we can be able to spend enough time on it. In chapter 49 is where Jacob blesses the 12 boys. And the first three is pretty ugly. It's it's not good. Um, Verse 1 says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together so so that I declare to you what is to befall you in the last days. I want to let that kind of germinate for a second. He's about to speak blessings over these 12 boys. But that's not technically what he says. Technically, what he says is, I need y'all to gather together because I'm going to speak over you what's going to happen to you later. He's saying, I'm I'm about to prophesy over you 12 boys. Wow. As a matter of fact, then he says, and what's going to happen to you in the last days? Wow. So um, the first three, I've already mentioned it was Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Reuben was to be the firstborn, uh, but he defiled his father's bed by laying with uh, his father's, his wife, his mom's uh, handmaid, really. Um, he had an illicit affair with her. Uh, and Jacob calls him out on it. He says, yeah, you're my firstborn, you're great, blah, 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 but this is what you did, so uh, you're, you're going to have trouble the rest of your life. He does the same thing with Simeon uh, and Levi collectively, but Levi becomes who? The priest. Now, this is where I want you to start to see something. All this is going to be connected, watch this, 
to the land that they inherit when they get into the land of Israel. You ever wonder about that? In other words, where did they... Um, Joshua takes them in, and it's left up to Joshua to make sure everybody gets their portion of their inheritance, which is dirt in the promised land. And their inheritance is directly related to their actions before they ever got into Egypt. The heads of these tribes and the decisions they make impact their whole tribes and basically forever. It's directly related to their inheritance. And it's specifically about land. So, Reuben and Simeon end up kind of scattered among the... He says, you will be scattered among my people. Levi was the same way. And Levi, remember, he's a priest. And the priests have what? No land inheritance. They're scattered all over the people. And a large chunk of them are gathered in the cities of refuge. And then they were also supposed to be living in Jerusalem, taking care of the Lord's house. God was their inheritance. They weren't supposed to worry about land. It's not until you get to Judah where there's a large section of land and inheritance that's mentioned. And what I want you to see is we're going to look at this, but I want you to remember that this inheritance and these blessings or this prophesying that he's speaking over these 12 boys ends up impacting where their descendants are going to live in the promised land for 1,500 years. And I think even into the millennium. That's why I said literally into eternity, there's an impact. Remember the scripture? I don't have it written down. It's in the New Testament where it says that, you know, when we get into heaven, we're going to be judged and given Uh, our gifts, if you will, our inheritance according to what? What we have done, not what you believed. Nowhere does it ever say that you will get your inheritance based on your belief system. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. It says that we will be judged and gifts will be given, if you will, your inheritance, placement in the kingdom, all that according to our deeds, according to what we have done. Here's a picture. Once again, it's all cyclical in your Bible. It's, over the, it's the, in there over and over and over again. But I want to focus now on this because this becomes important on uh, Judah. <clears throat> so you get to verse 8, and he says, You, Yehuda, because there's no J sound in Hebrew, Yehuda, your brothers praise you. Your hand is on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children bow down before you. Yehuda is a lion's cub. You ever wonder where it says of the lion of the tribe of Judah? This is where it's coming from. 
From the prey you have gone up, my son. He bowed down and crouched like a lion. And like a lion, who does rouse him? This is interesting. Now remember, this is prophetic, right? Look at what he says. The scepter shall not turn aside from Yehuda, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him is the obedience of peoples, or that could be nations. This is starting to sound a little confusing. If you understand now he's talking about the Messiah and the Messiah coming from Judah, it'll start to make some more sense. And then look what he says. Binding his donkey to the vine. Does that sound familiar? And his donkey's colt to a choice vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. <laughs> it's right here. He washed his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Was it talk about Jesus when he comes back that his robes are what? Dipped in the blood. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, here's something else. I want to look at this little section here for a second. It says, until Shiloh comes. And this is something that even the, the, the Jewish uh, sages, they, they debate over this a little bit. Number one, they know, and that's why that is there, uh, it's, it's uh, capitalized. Because it's either until he comes to Shiloh or until Shiloh comes which is another name for, and they understood this to mean the Messiah. Now here's what's also fascinating. Because it can say until he comes to Shiloh or until Shiloh comes. But when you keep reading this, and even the sages would say, well, they, they believe that this had something to do with the Messiah. Well, we can see this now looking backward, how this is connected to Yeshua, right? Well, I've already mentioned that. But there's this thing about Shiloh that's a little fascinating. Once again, there is nothing in your Bible by accident. Nothing. Here's what's fascinating. The city of Shiloh is this unassuming place. It's kind of desolate out there. Sonia and I had a chance to go there. Um, Shiloh is where the when they get into Israel, it's at the city of Shiloh, or they pronounce it Shiloh, uh, where the tabernacle of God that went with them throughout the wilderness, the tent, the Ark of the Covenant, all that, the tabernacle stood there in Shiloh for over 400 years. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It was in Shiloh. But you know what's also fascinating about that? Shiloh is in the area of Ephraim. Yeah. And you go, 
okay, there's a connection here. What is this connection here between Judah and Ephraim? I've already alluded to it, right? You got two tribes. You got two, you got two nations. You got the southern nation, the, the northern nation. You got the nation of Judah, the house of Judah, the house of Israel, or Ephraim. And guess what? The scripture tells us that to this very day, they are still at odds with each other. Still at odds with each other. But it says that when it happens, though, and when God brings us back, he will deal with all that and they will no longer be at odds with each other. We'll look at that here in just a second. Turn the page with me. Now he gets to... I'm jumped way ahead now, down almost to the bottom, where now he's going to be blessing Joseph, Yosef. And he says, and Yosef is an offshoot of a fruit-bearing tree, an offshoot of a fruit-bearing tree by a fountain. His branches run over a wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him, but his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, or Israel. From there is the, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Since we've been studying all this, are you now starting to see these pictures of the Messiah and all this prophetic significance here? He's saying from Judah and Ephraim and all of Israel, the Messiah is going to come. Joseph, you're this great offshoot. You're this great vine. You're a tree planted by a river. Find that in Proverbs. Uh, you're, you're this guy that's also been hated by all your enemies, but you've stayed strong. Who also hated or who also has been hated and yet stayed strong? Jesus. Um, and it says, and from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. We know that to be Christ. We know that to be the Messiah. Keep going. It says, verse 25, from there, God, the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings from the heavens above, Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the limit of the everlasting hills. He is saying the blessings that are coming on you, Joseph, are bigger and higher than all the blessings that were spoken over my ancestors. He's trying to get him to see that these blessings that are going to come to you and Ephraim and Manasseh, basically you, and you're getting this double portion, Joseph, this blessing is going to be massive. And he says, they are on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. <clears throat> Jesus literally says, the scripture says that at the end of time, that even Israel uh, will grieve when they look upon him, one whom they have pierced, as they look on one of their own, their brother. Um, 
I want you to do something for me before we look at this little page here. I want you to turn the page just for one second. I'll put this verse in here for you. It's in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 through 2. I'm sorry. I want you to look down at, at Isaiah 11, 13 first. That's now at the bottom of the page because I just alluded to that. <clears throat> it says, And the envy of Ephraim shall turn aside, and the adversaries of Yehuda be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Yehuda, and Yehuda will not trouble Ephraim. This is when he brings everybody back that is still to come. It hasn't happened yet. And he says that when that happens, there will no longer be this issue between Ephraim and Judah. Basically, these two nations. It won't happen until at the very end. I put this up here at the top, 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, is just to help you see that this blessing spoken uh, by Israel um, in the Torah is the blueprint for the land portions and order of the inheritance given based on their actions as they are uh, even in heaven. So I want you to see this because this is where it's talking about this. In, second, in 1 Chronicles 5, it's just the first two verses here. It says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright actually belonged to Joseph. Now, here's what he's saying here. This is where it's now, in this verse, helps us understand what happened. He's saying, I'm giving the, the birthright blessing to Joseph, but the leadership, kingship, is going to come through Judah. The only way you can understand this is a suffering servant, a son of, son of Joseph, son of David. Jesus comes through the tribe of, uh, of Judah as the king, but he's also going to come twice. He comes the first time as this suffering servant. He comes the second time as reigning king. And this whole conflicted thing here is a picture once again about the Messiah that's going to come. And he's also given us a little taste here saying, but you know what? You guys are so messed up. You're not going to do what I tell you to do. And you're going to get divided and I'm going to scatter you and all these things. And he's trying to give us a little hint that this is what he's talking about here in this prophecy. Does that make sense a little bit? I'm not going to go over all these. If you go back to page three, I've got on here so that I literally just copied and pasted this so that you could see the, the 12 boys and the blessings or the prophecies that were spoken over each one of them. And you can see that these first three, uh, they, they really you know, get it pretty hard. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, which I talked about. And then Judah will be the praise of all Israel. Kings will come from, come from him. Uh, then you got Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then Benjamin. Now then, when the people of Israel cross over, uh, which you find in the book of Joshua, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and you know, following there. <clears throat> they go in and then they conquer the land, and the land was divided up. You ever wonder, I mean, I used to, until I was studying all this, like, well, then who, what did they do? Decide who gets what land where and how that works out. This was the blueprint right here. 
This was the blueprint. This is what they were studying. This is what Joshua would have understood. He'd had 40 years going through the wilderness with Moses, and Moses explaining all this to him, and that when they get in the land, this is how this is going to work out. And Joshua, it's going to be your responsibility to make sure that the heads of these tribes know these are going to be your portions. In other words, it wasn't just by happenstance. And Jacob here is prophesying this way, way beforehand. Now then, that's that part. And Susan already talked about this a little bit before, but I want you to, I want you to look at this with me in Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to see how this stuff ties together here in just a second. In verse 15, it says, when Yosef's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Yosef hates us and he pays us back for the evil? They're like, daddy's dead now. And Joseph is like Pharaoh. All he has to do is say, kill him, done. No questions asked. Zero. Uh, And so they're scared. Um, Which is just symptomatic of their heart still, okay? And they do something that's really fascinating. So what they do is they send word to Joseph. They don't even go themselves. They send word. They send somebody to tell Joseph something. This is what they say. This is what you're supposed to tell him. Before your father died, he commanded, saying, this is what you're to say to Joseph. I beg you, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the Elohim of your father. Now they're going to employ uh, God and say, we're, we're God's servants. Um, but then it says, and Yosef wept when they spoke to him. First of all, we don't know that Jacob gave that command. It's not in Scripture. Could he have done that? It's possible. But we're going to have to read between the lines to see that that happened. Would it be a far stretch for them to lie to save their hides? No. It would not be a far stretch for them, these boys, to lie to save their sorry hides from their brother they tried to murder. Uh, they should have already figured out because it's been another 17 years, right? They've been in the land there 17 years. They should have learned by now. He's not going to do that. He could have even already done it if he wanted to, but he's not going to do that. They should have known his heart already, but they didn't. And then look what it says, And Yosef said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And you... You intended evil against me, but God intended it for good in order to do it as it is to this day to keep and grant many people, a great many people alive. Who does that sound like? Sounds like exactly what happened on the cross, isn't it? That what was meant for evil by Satan and all of his demons and all the other evil people that wanted him dead, including the Romans, including everybody else, including some of the Jews, but it wasn't just the Jews who murdered him. <clears throat> and he said, what y'all wanted to do for evil, God meant it for good. God allowed it to happen so that a great number of people could still be alive in eternity. That's some good news, isn't it? And it says, and now do not fear. I provide for, I provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Who does that sound like? 
Sounds just like Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going and I'm going to bring you there to be with me. He says, don't be afraid. This is exactly what Joseph is telling his brothers. It's exactly what Jesus told us and told his disciples. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? The interesting thing is, and, and, and then it, it basically closes with uh, Joseph uh, dying, you know, and they end up staying there. <clears throat> if you remember, though, we didn't cover, I didn't go over it in detail, but Jacob even told him, he says, look, um, I know this is what's going to happen here, um, but God will come back and visit you, and you will leave from here a great nation. Uh, Joseph never saw it. He never saw it. Generation after generation didn't see it. It's basically 400 years before they come out, before Moses leads them out. Um, but God was faithful, and God did that for his reasons. In this, this other section that they have that they would read along with this section is found in 1 Kings. I've got four uh, verses here for us in 1 Kings chapter 2. <clears throat> And I believe it does tie exactly to this issue of, watch this, you reap what you sow. Even for us as believers, as we live our lives here, and the things that we do or say, or how we act, how we treat other people, folks, it will echo in eternity. I'm a movie buff. Watch the movie Gladiator greatest scene in the whole movie is at the very beginning and he's telling the guys he goes what we do here today will echo in eternity and it's just a great line and it really is spiritually true because what we do on this earth will echo in eternity don't think that it doesn't it does and I want you to see here because David is now drawing near to the end of his life he's commissioning Solomon he's commissioning Solomon and I want you to see what he says to him. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Then look at this. Be strong and show yourself a man. There's more and more dads need to stand up and be a man in their home and teach their sons to be men. Teach their women. Moms need to be teaching your daughters to be godly women, holy women, sanctified women. He challenges him and says, be strong and show yourself a man. And keep, look at how he says that now he's going to do it. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, and his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, hmm, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. <clears throat> Out of David's line comes Yeshua. But what does he say here? He says, look, you need to show yourself a man. You want to prosper? You want to have God prosper you? Then you walk according to his ways and keep his word in your heart and follow it. 
My greatest heartache in a, being a pastor is dealing with the wreckage and carnage in people's lives. It, it breaks my heart. Uh, when I see people and I try to help people, and, and by the time I usually get called, the wreck has already happened. The, the paramedics have already been there and taken them to the hospital. The doctors have already proclaimed their pronouncement. I mean, then it's like, okay, now it's time to call the pastor. I mean, the crash has already happened. And I'm not talking about a physical crash. I'm talking about a moral, cultural, whatever catastrophe that has happened. And people are splitting apart, and they can't figure out why people can't get along, and everything's just a royal mess. Nobody can communicate. Nobody can listen. Nobody can be passionate, compassionate, and forgiving in their own house. Why? Because I'm sitting there going, well, let's back up all the way to the beginning. Like, way, way back... Not when you met your wife or your husband. I'm talking about way back here when you were 14, 12. These attitudes that started. And then I would always tell girls and kids when I was a youth minister, ladies, you want to marry uh, a prince, don't you? A knight in shining armor. I want to treat you like a queen, right? Here's, here's my... Advice for you, sweetheart, then don't date bums. Okay? Because you're going to fall in love with one of those idiots, and you can't fix him. Okay? So don't date bums. They're not worth it. This is where it starts. I love to trout fish. I love to eat trout. You're not going to catch trout in a catfish pond. Not going to happen. And I see guys and girls looking for Guinevere or King Arthur in a bar, in, a, in worse places, wherever. And I'm like, okay, so I tell you what, let's take two crashes and put them together and assume that it's going to turn out good. God tells us over and over and over again, for instance, how can a young man keep his way right? By hiding God's word in his heart. Amen. You're not going to learn it from any textbook. The only way it happens is by filling yourself up so much with God and his word that you don't let the other junk in. And then walking it out. And yet so few people understand this. And especially in the church. It's like, you know, just come to church, listen to a sermon, good music, put your money in, go home, figure it out, you know, do it again next week and it'll be okay. And what we're learning is, no, if we will do what he says, now our lives have gone on the offensive instead of the defensive. And now I am empowered to live right before Him, and it's not a burden, it's a gift and a blessing, an empowerment. Why would I not want to do that? It's like, okay, you got, a 50, you got a, one of those thousand-piece puzzles. 
You really want to put it together without the front of the box? Why do believers do that all the time? Even Messianic believers, Christians, whatever, want to try to put the puzzle together. Here, let's just make it fit. And can't understand why the puzzle looks dumb. Doing it with our lives. When God goes, it's real simple. It's real simple. Guys, you need to be praying a blessing over your family. Moms, you need to be praying a blessing over your kids and your husband. Stop praying that God would fix your husband. Start praying that God would bless your husband and help him be everything that God wants him to be, not what you want him to be. You know why that's so messed up? We don't understand how this works, but it's because I deal deal with this in counseling. And when I say it to people, they look at me like I've lost my mind. But there's a lot of women that they would like for their husbands to be kind of like their dad. There's a problem with that. Your husband can't be your dad. Right? I mean, it can't be. And when you try to have your dad as your husband, that's incestuous, doesn't work. Then it becomes even more messed up, right? So when you start praying, asking, and we have, because we have these ideals, no one really says, I want you to be my dad, but we have these ideals in our head that you can't get to. The ladder's on the wrong wall. So we start praying that God would do this, change my wife into that, change my husband into this, change my kid into this. From our perspective that we don't understand, our ladder is leaning on the wrong wall. It's the wrong prayer. What the prayer should be, please make this person like Ephraim and Manasseh. The double portion of your blessings, God. Help them to become great in your kingdom. Help them to be everything you want them to be. That changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? Well, that's what God has told us that we're supposed to be doing from His Word. We just don't do it. What do we do? We're trying to put together a puzzle without looking at the front of the box. And we can't figure it out. This is why David here tells Solomon, Hey, Solomon, big boy, show yourself a man, dude. Live according to God's Word. What does Solomon do? Just the opposite. Which is amazing. When he takes over the kingdom... God tells him, ask. You ask me anything and I'll give it to you. So what does Solomon ask for? Give me wisdom that I might rule your people rightly. And God goes, since you asked for that, I'm going to give you money and power and everything else on top of it. So he's that smart with wisdom from God. In all of his wisdom, this is what he comes up with. Let me see if I can find a meaning in life without God. Read Ecclesiastes. He had a gazillion wives because one's not enough. And on and on and on. For somebody to be so smart, King David's son, given this commission and to blow it that badly, he really did. Because he didn't do what? He didn't live by the very word of God. He started to depend on his own wisdom. Amazing. I want you to turn the page with me. This is where we're going to try to tie this together. Now we get into the New Testament. This is fascinating. We went through this not that long ago. Here it is in 1 Peter. It's just the first nine verses. Kepha or Peter. 
an emissary or ambassador of Yeshua, the Messiah, to the chosen, to the saints, in other words. Who are these saints? Strangers of the dispersion. That's who he's writing to. Because if we're going to read our Bible, we're going to read it in going to read it in context. So he's writing it to the strangers, or another word would be aliens of the dispersion. There's only one group of people he can be talking about. It's, it's when you know these things, then you go, well, then we know exactly who he's talking to. Who's he talking to? He's talking to those 10 northern tribes. He's talking to Ephraim. He's talking to the house of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, that's also referred to Ephraim, that's been gone now from the time Peter's writing this. They've been out of the land about 850 years. I think it was in 722, Assyria conquers the 10 northern tribes, scatters them all over the known world, even ships some of them off to islands. You have to get into other readings to figure that out. You know where that would have been? Find this strange. England. Britannia. And uh, to the farthest edges of Spain, which is why Paul said that he had to get to Spain because he was trying to get to the farthest reaches where those 10 northern tribes were sent. So this is who Peter is writing to. Now listen to what he says. We just looked at what? The inheritance spoken, spoken over these two groups or, or these 12 boys, but there's an emphasis on two groups. Joseph's descendants and Judah and his descendants, that there's this weird tension, uh, kingship, double blessing, firstborn. It didn't really make sense, right? <clears throat> but now look at this. And then he says the area. There's, in the dispersion, they're in where? Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and where? Bithynia. Hmm. Okay, chosen according to the foreknowledge of Elohim the Father, set apart by the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Yeshua Messiah, favor and peace be increased to you. There's his greeting. Blessed be the God and Father of our Master Yeshua Messiah, who according to his great compassion has caused us to be born again to a living expectation through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah from the dead. To what? An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. Folks, I'm telling you that the people that read this, they knew their ancestry. They picked up on that. When he said, listen, through Yeshua, you now have an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, and forever. They hadn't been in the land in their inheritance for nearly a thousand years. And now they're finding out, you mean the Messiah came? The one we've been looking for? It goes all the way back to these blessings? You're kidding me. And it's even more than me getting to go to the ranch in the promised land? You mean 
this Messiah has given me an inheritance that's incorruptible? I can't mess this up? Exactly. Having been kept in the heavens for you, who are preceded by the power of Elohim through belief for a deliverance ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember what Jacob said? I'm going to prophesy over you what's going to happen in the last days, in the, in the latter times, in which you exalt, even though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by manifold trials. You've been grieved by manifold trials. You're not in the land. You've been dispersed. You're, you know, you used to be Americans. Now you're not because another nation came in and overtook you and scattered you, took some of you off as slaves. You haven't even been in your land for thousands. You don't even speak English anymore. A thousand years. It's a long time, isn't it? And then look what it says. In order that the proving of your belief, much more precious than gold that perishes, and proven by fire, might be found to result in praise and respect and esteem at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. He's saying, these trials that you're going through, what they're doing is they're testing your faith. They're not testing it whether or not it's good or not. Sometimes you got to go through that fire so that your faith is stronger, not weaker. And it will only become weaker if it's not based on the very Word of God. If it's based on your emotions and your events, it can become weaker. Well, how in the world could God do that to me? Well, I, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with the church. I'm done with this. I'm done. You know, I'm just going to go do my thing. Come on. Anybody else ever go, I'm, I'm done? You know? Um, it's, it's actually the easy thing to do, yet, but when your faith is based on the Word of God, you go, God, I don't know what's going on, and this isn't fun, but I, don't, I only have one thing left, and that's to hold on to you. I'm going to hold on to you and wait to see how this thing pans out, but I know that you're God. I know that you're a loving God. I know that you know everything. I don't know anything. I know that I'm in pain. I know that I don't enjoy what's going on, but I'm not going to lose faith that you are the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of all gods, that you've known everything from the very beginning. You, you know me and you love me in spite of myself. You died for me. I'm not going to let go. That's when your faith becomes stronger when you've been through so much. Because when you go through enough, there's little that surprises you. The only problem with that, for most people, you got to either have some gray hair or no hair to get to that point. And sometimes you have to look at some of the young bucks and go, well, you'll get it eventually. Because there's, there's no way around this. You're just going to have to live it and love him and go through it. And there's no shortcut. Um, you just have to get to the other side. And it says, in order that the proving of your belief, much more precious than gold, perishes uh, and proven by fire, might be found to result in praise and respect and esteem, or that word is also glory, at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom you exalt with unspeakable and esteemed joy, yet not seeing but believing, obtaining the goal of your belief, here it is, deliverance of lives. What was it that Joseph said? You guys meant this for evil but he sent me here 
so that a great number of people will survive. Saying here that all of this is happening and that the goal of our belief is literally the deliverance of our lives, our souls, our very being. So what's going on here? You got these two tribes. You got Peter saying, Yeshua came, the promise came, and I'm sending out this message to these, what are now referred to as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. It's also referred to as Ephraim or Ephraimites. Uh, which it quite honestly is pretty much who we are. And I believe that's why God has whistled for us to understand these truths and not get too caught up in some other stuff, not fall off in the deep weeds and to try to lead people to a saving knowledge of Yeshua um, and then find out how to work out your faith according to the Word of God in a way that actually brings glory and honor to His name instead of working it out in the imaginations of our own heart, which is what most Christians do. We think well, we're supposed to pray, we're supposed to go to church, you know, sing, be a good person, witness to people. We have no clue about how to lead our families. Uh, we have no clue about how to actually really worship Him in a way that's pleasing to Him. Um, and the list goes on and on, which we've talked about at, time, at times here. Uh, I don't believe that happens here. Um, but this is to be a place, a safe place, where we can teach people these truths uh, where they won't be uh, attacked and so on and so forth. And they can come to understand this, that this is what God is doing. And now we're living in these days where it's close. And God is whistling for His people. Um, and He's whistling for you to understand these things so that when it does hit the fan, you'll know how to respond. So here's the deal. In the near future, if the tribulation were to start, I would hope that at least the people here would know that it has started and what to do and how to respond. I don't believe in the pre-trib rapture. I think that's a real thin theory based on two very thin verses in the Bible. But the Bible is very clear on what will happen. And it says that those that know their gods will do great exploits. And those of us that know will know how to respond and know what to do. And the only reason why we're going to know what to do is because we're actually reading the Bible for what it says and then trying to study it and then watch this. But we have to be working at applying it to our lives. Did Solomon know what God said? Yes. Did Solomon have a relationship with God? Yeah. Did he mess up? Yes. Big time. Basically didn't show himself to be a real man. Although he had all the power, all the money, all the stuff anybody could ever imagine. Yet he really didn't show himself to be a real man because he didn't study the Word of God, live by the Word of God, and proclaim the Word of God, and lead people in the Word of God. It's because of his son that the nation splits. David's grandson, 
King David's grandson is the reason you end up with the two houses of Israel and they never, they still haven't come back yet as one nation, but they will. I think this study is absolutely fascinating. And the one thing that I want us to see here uh, is this, this idea of this inheritance <clears throat> and that what we do here literally will echo into eternity. Now, here's the good news. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. If you were to say, but I haven't been doing this or I didn't do that or, you know, yeah, my life was a train wreck and trying to, for it to stop. Here, it's a simple way for it to stop being a train wreck. Live your life according to the very word of God. Stop being all that. Most of the people that I talk to where their lives are train wreck, they know everything. They, they've actually already got it all figured out. I'm like, and I usually want to say, well, how's that working out? I mean, for crying out loud, seriously? Pride goeth before the fall. That's what the scripture says. Um, so stop pointing the finger. Stop trying to get everybody else to align up with whatever ideals you got in your head. Be humble before your God. Memorize the word of God. Be great about forgiving other people. Try to encourage other people. Start off by trying to bless your family. I hear guys to this very day referring to their wives as my old lady. It makes me want to knock their lights out. Literally. Uh, I'm like, Don't, you're speaking curses. Refer to their kids as idiots. On and on. I'm like, those are curses. Stop doing that. One of the reasons why Jewish kids grow up to be so successful, they actually believe they are. They grow up hearing it every Friday night where they're being blessed by their family and their mother and their father. They're, they're terrific. It's those other kids at the school that just don't figure you out. You're the great one. They go through life believing that they can't actually do anything. And they actually do because God is also blessing them. Why? Because they've had a million blessings spoken over them instead of curses. We got families that can't figure this out. Our inheritance will follow us based on what we do here. Amen. Do it well. Do it well. Glorify your king. 